Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an indie record label or even being a DIY self-releasing artist. Welcome to the second episode in a series called Release Roadmap, which is basically this new series. And 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 you should really go back and listen to the previous episode with Sufjan Stevens and, and even the episode before that where I kind of explain what this series is all about. Um, but basically what we're doing is we're taking a specific album and we're talking with the team and the record label behind that album to expand and go behind the curtain and go behind the scenes to explore how they plan for this release, how they strategize and how they dealt with obstacles such as the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's episode, I'm so excited, is um, with the team behind Phoebe Bridger's record Punisher, which just now as I'm recording this is starting to appear at the top, very high up on a lot of year-end lists rightfully so. Last week's episode, and again, I want to encourage you to listen to that as well, is with Asthmatic Kitty, the record label and the team behind Sufjan Stevens and his latest record, The Ascension. So make sure you don't miss that. I want to I want to say thank you so much to the team at Dead Oceans and at Secretly Group, um, Robbie Morris and Evan Weichart and Hannah Carlin, who um, joined me on today's episode, and we talk about the release strategy when they first heard the record, that uh, incredible moment when some label people get to have an album to themselves that nobody else has heard, and and planning out the whole process, working with Phoebe and some of the, the ideas um, that she came up with, and, and then of course dealing with the pandemic and how to release a record during the pandemic, which in my opinion, I think they did a fantastic job, all things considering. Um, our audience, you know, the reason I do this episode is because our audience is built up of people who run indie record labels who or who work at indie record labels or even people who are just independent musicians who self-release their music and model themselves after record labels. And so that's the whole goal of this show. I know we're going to have some new listeners for this episode, um, but that's the whole goal of this show. And, and I'm hoping that these episodes of Release Roadmap is helpful for you guys to um, glean some of these um, wise tips and advice and strategies that that these folks used on incredible releases such as Phoebe Bridger's Punisher and 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 finding principles and, and actual tips and practical applications that you can use for your own releases and for your own record label. Speaking of helpful resources, I have actually created a release roadmap, a physical template that you can download for free. All you have to do is go to our website, otherrecordlabels.com slash roadmap. And I've created this um, PDF template you can download for free. And it is something that I basically created after I did these episodes. And I pulled some of the um, the tips and the, and the timelines that I took from these two episodes and, and, and figured out you know, when might be the ideal time to reach certain mile markers in a release campaign. And so I put that together. You can download that at otherrecordlabels.com slash roadmap. I hope you find that helpful. I hope you enjoy this episode. I want to say right off the top, I always aim for to try to make the audio quality as as clean and sweet and as warm and beautiful as possible. Um, But uh, this was a little bit challenging because we there was four of us over Zoom. And so it all kind of funneled into one channel. And I had to kind of uh, tweak the EQ based on the whole group as a whole. So th- there there might be some moments that um, are, are a little bit difficult. And we had some um, connectivity issues, but uh, I tried to smooth out the process as much as possible. I want to thank these guys for doing this show so much. Uh, I hope you find this helpful.
Um, and I'll let you, you know, our listeners are, are not going to be watching this. They'll just be hearing this. So um, can I maybe real quick just go around the Zoom box here and, and get a, a intro of who you are and, and what your role is in normal life and what your role maybe it was on this project? Um, I'll go first. Yeah. Uh, my name is Robbie Morris. Uh, I'm the creative director at Secretly Group, uh, Dead Oceans. Um, my role at the label is kind of the um, intersection of the visuals, um, marketing, a little bit of A&R, and, um, and I guess just any kind of creative, eventy, stunty, contesty stuff that we and our artists, our artist partners um, want to cook up. Um, with Phoebe, we, you know, we worked with her really early in on this campaign, right when the record was finalizing to kind of come up with the visual language to think of some of the ideas that she kind of wanted to, to manifest um, with the album. Um, and then, you know, as we'll discuss, COVID happened and, um, the landscape for all that stuff changed. So um, there were lots of different shifts and slides that we did along the way, but um, I think we ended up with a pretty great campaign. Yeah. Evan? Yeah, I'm Evan Weikart. Um, right now I am the head of North American project management for Secretly Distribution. But at the time I was the project manager at Secretly Group for both uh, Stranger in the Alps, Phoebe's debut on Dead Oceans, and for this record. Awesome. Hannah. I'm Hannah Carlin. I'm our marketing director for the U.S. and Canada. Uh, that means a lot of collaborative work with a lot of uh, other arms of our marketing department, working with Robbie on when creative endeavors work through uh, social or, or other avenues like that. I actually ever, I, I oversee our advertising and social media as well. So um, sort of helping keep those, those channels on track overseeing broad marketing strategy and then in particular being super hands-on with physical marketing strategy, um, direct to fan stuff, things like that. Are you guys all working from home right now? Oh yeah. And, and have you been for a, a while? Since March 19th? Was that the day? March oh 12th. March 12th. Oh, that's right. Oh. Yeah. Wow. That's cool that you're working from home. And were you working from home during this, obviously you were during, during this album. Was that, was that problematic or, or did you guys, um, how you how'd you adjust a lot, it? A lot of the setup work, you know, the initial figuring out like an initial timeline had already happened by that point. Mm. Um, so the real work was when all of that blew up. <laughs> we had right. to yeah. Yeah. sort of refigure the whole thing. Sure. And that that was the that was the really interesting thing to do from home was was having made a hundred, you know, big and small decisions around this record was then remaking them while we were figuring out if, if those remade decisions were even necessarily the right thing. I mean, everything was up in the air mm. and we had put the first single out two weeks before. Right. Yeah. Though we were very lucky. We had a little bit of, uh, we were a little agile because we had put the first single out, but had not announced an album. Okay. Uh, so that really helped I remember when, that. when it became clear that plant closures from, from COVID were going to affect the physical production it, we had a little bit of flexibility to move the date before we announced the next single and actually had to commit to launching a pre-order for, for a full album. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that is good. And I, and we're going to get into COVID. I want to, I want to start a little bit, um, 
somewhere else, but because, I mean, this is really a, a very interesting COVID record because of it falling in that season. But let's talk about the sophomore album in general. I mean, in the past, it's been a little precarious for some artists, although maybe not so much anymore. But was that on the minds of everyone on the team? Did the success of the first album put extra pressure on you guys? I would say that because we had the better Oblivion Community Center record between right. these two, that, you know, if you're speaking specifically to sort of a sophomore slump, sure. I, I personally wasn't at all worried about it. We'd only seen, I mean, Phoebe had only been getting uh, her profile growing and growing That's from Stranger in the Alps to, you know, their project like Boy Genius, Better Oblivion Community Center. Like there were just so many things happening where it, it wasn't like Stranger in the Alps came out in 2017 and then sort of silence until her next <laughs> that's creative a good point. Yeah, moment. that's true. I feel like, you know, traditionally we, you know, sometimes talk about starving the beast. Um, when you're thinking about marketing, you're thinking about campaign timelines, building anticipation, you know, having fans ask when, when that next record is coming. Um, but Phoebe's kind of consistently upended that in certain ways. She, there's just a constant stream of great content that she puts out into the world, whether it's via her side projects or holiday singles or collaborations with other artists. Um, she's really good at staying front and center um, for her fans. So it, it did feel, you know, almost like a seamless, we've been working on Phoebe Bridger's music for the past two, three years, almost constantly. Yeah. Wow. That's a great point. The album came out in June 18th. Is that right? June 18th. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 2020, um, can someone take me back to when that date was settled on? Uh, how far back are we talking? And, and and there was a bit of a spoiler earlier. Was there a previous date? Yeah. Yeah, originally, um, we were very lucky that we only had to move it a week. Originally, the plan was to launch with the song without saying an album was coming. And then on April 9th, we were going to launch the actual album pre-order with the second single. And the plan originally was April 12th. By late March, we had gotten all the information that said plants, specifically printing plants, had shut down, and that we needed to re- we needed to rethink what that that physical street date would be. Um, luckily, a portion of those were already done, so we were able to only have to move it a week. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so, so it was still going to be in that time of of. Uh, well, there was a we had about from uh, you know late March until that April, we had about a week of not knowing whether we were talking about pushing this back significantly, just a week. You uh, mean for the release? Um, I, I think we've, I think we've crossed a wire on the timeline here for a second. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. The release date was you, that was still up in the air. Yeah. I mean, at the time we knew we had to close that we knew production was going to throw that up in the air. Right. We had about a week between when we were sure that the plants had shut down to when we were supposed to launch the second single okay. to find out when are we actually going to get print? When are we actually going to be able to put this out? So there was a week of uncertainty, but there was also, there was at that time we were talking back in March and, and between March and May, there was a lot of major artists who decided to delay the record. I think Haim did. I think the killers did. I think, um, uh, lady gaga did like was that i mean was were you thinking let's just save this until we know the pandemic is over which spoiler alert it didn't end but you would have you know just in case you could have gotten a tour or something was there thoughts i think it 
got discussed because, um, and this was announced at the time, but Phoebe was uh, supposed to be opening the 1975 tour, which was right. going to be April okay. and May. Um, so it definitely got discussed, mm-hmm. but not, I mean, not contentiously that I recall and not to the point that, that, um, not to the point that we ended up changing it much, frankly. Yeah. To my, to my memory, I don't know. I don't remember anything beyond uh, the quick open question and then a very quick, like, no, we're putting this record on. <laughs> okay. Well, June was probably a better time than, you know, if you had a record coming out in early April, probably, I think that maybe the discussion would have been a little different. Uh, was there something specific about June? I mean, do seasons ever, let's talk about outside of the pandemic, do seasons ever play a role in release day decision-making for you guys? I mean, anything abstract like that? I mean, I would think a spring release, I mean, it's such a, it's a, it's a, almost like a, it's a new season. It's, it's like a new year in a way. And it's a great way to make an album, a candidate for a summer album for people. What kind of thought process goes into abstract thinking like that? And so, sometimes an artist has a has a feel. Some, mm-hmm. Sometimes a record has a feel. Or oh, an artist sure. says, you know, I think yeah. this is a this season record or a that <laughs> yeah. season record. Um, in in the bygone days of normal touring, uh, touring plays a big factor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, does an artist want to hit the the festival season of the year that they're putting their record out? Are they trying to hopefully hit the festival season after that and be headline touring ahead? Um, that I think is one of the bigger pieces of the calculus is just sort of how to, how to reconcile the, like optimal touring and optimal release schedule together. I see. Let's go back as far as this project can go. Was, when was the album handed in from the artist and, or how far back in the timeline was this record on the label's radar? So we have release date in June. How far back can you take us? Oh, that is digging back. I mean, it would have been, I think we went to Los Angeles for a planning meeting in October of 2019. Wow. Um, and then at that point, I don't think it was fully finished. We had heard some some mixes, but not the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, we sat around a, ta- a table at Sound City Studios with Phoebe, uh, her, her manager, um, the producer on the record, and we did a, you know, a two-hour planning meeting just to discuss what the record was going to what, what it was going to be about and what it was going to look like, what the visuals for the record were going to be. Our art director was there as well. Um, at that point, we were talking about timelines as if there was, there were this, there was this 1975 tour or even just that there was a, an abstract tour. Um, but she was still finishing the record. She was playing us unfinished mixes during that meeting. Mm. It's funny. I had gone back through the emails we sent just after the planning meeting where we, where we threw out a initial timeline. And what we ended up with wasn't that radically different than what what we originally planned when we're talking about just album release date and you know um, pre-release track launches. There were lots of other moments in between there that we couldn't have predicted at the time. Hmm. So when okay, so in October you're listening to um, rough mixes or or early mixes. Would you have set a deadline to? Uh, would you have set a, a a potential release date around that time when you're doing early plannings? Depending on what's happening, like Hannah mentioned, the touring, mm-hmm. which was known much further in advance. So yeah, at that point, knowing that and knowing how that lined up, we would have we would have definitely built a timeline around those tour dates. 
And then would you have, so when would you have got masters or when in ideal situation would you have uh, expected <laughs> masters? In an ideal scenario, <laughs> we would have received them uh, around, you know, um, before the turn of the year. Okay. Okay. But that wasn't the case? You know, I'm not actually sure the date we received the master. Okay. Uh, I'd have to go back and see, but I, I think I think we got it in maybe December, if I'm remembering correctly. And that's and that's primarily because of pressing, right? I mean, that's really what is that really what the the, the longest lead time that you have to deal with? Yes and no. I mean, physical vinyl specifically takes up is the longest thing that. It, thing that takes the longest to make mm-hmm. and turn times vary like now it's a little more insane than it has been in years previous yeah, I hear but it. also there's a real reason to have like a finished master in hand as early as possible because you know you're competing with a limited number of of, of dsps mm-hmm. for the attention and trying to get those early marketing conversations to happen um and then robbie can speak to the specifics on that for sure yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's there's the physical demands and there's there's the deadlines and there's wanting to, you know, get everything right and leave room for mistakes and leave room for this, you know, for this test to go wrong or for that thing to 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 be adjusted. But there's also just the the time is helpful to just wrap your head around a record and mm-hmm. to spend time with the visuals before you pitch something and to spend time with the story before you go tell someone about it. I mean, there is that sort of like we can hit every mark uh, in terms of like deadlines and milestones and deliveries, but more time is always better. More mm. time to like, you know, just sit with something, think about it, have a good idea, change your mind and decide on some better idea. Um, you know, that, that space um, to me at least is just is super important. I got to imagine something really special like the kinfolk um, feature is something that would have benefited from having the masters in early. Is that true? No, I'm I'm unsure how soon. I'm I'm, I'm not quite sure how early the publicist on the record would have been sharing audio. Yeah. Um, she would have had it, you know, around the time we had. But I'm, there would have been a period of time where access to audio would have been very restricted, and then slowly sure. opening up. Sure. It must feel nice to to have a record that you know the whole world wants to hear on your iPod for a little while. That short little window when it's just yours. <laughs> you feel for the record, I never downloaded the audio and put it on my phone of this record during the uh, <laughs> right. stated embargo period. Uh, the the Punisher skeleton. Let's talk about marketing for a second. That that's a skeleton. I don't know if you maybe have an internal term for it, but it became this cheeky brand identity for the album. Uh, I don't know how much of that was strategic, um, but it had this incredible effect where it ties together all of the things that Phoebe did around the record, like the videos and the performances and merch. And I love how it played out. For me, it was it it was funny, but it was also really effective. Is there was there any Anything behind that that you can share? I think the, the skeleton, you know, in an early conversation we had with Phoebe, she said, you know, maybe half, you know, with a half smile, you know, the skeleton suit is the outfit I feel the most comfortable wearing. Um, you know, and if, in a way, you know, we, we took that to kind of be emblematic of the kind of music she makes and the way she expresses herself in general. Um, Phoebe is, you know both very you know she's both expresses a lot of vulnerability and emotion in her music and kind of being able to see someone's insides 
but also there is a level of there's a bit of a wink as well there's a bit of humor there's a bit of artifice involved in it so we knew the skeleton suit was going to be a part of the story um we were pretty sure it was going to end up on the front of the cover but we did go through various versions that didn't feature it um the world that the skeleton suit inhabits was definitely always a part of the kind of visual identity um but the fact that she started wearing it in everything she did was you know, kind of a welcome surprise. It wasn't strategic, at least on our end, <laughs> as like, like this is your brand, keep on repeating it. She yeah. just did it, and it worked pretty brilliantly, I thought. Yeah, it does this thing where there's this this familiarity without without ruining it by talking about it too much, but there's this thing where when you see, I mean, and this will happen in years from now, where you see different things on YouTube or different performances, you can really tie them to the Punisher era because of what she's wearing. And I I don't know, I kind of appreciate that. Well, I think that showed through with the uh, with the contest you all put together, the, the Garden Song video contest of all the fan-generated videos. Yeah, so much came from the skeleton suit and those early kind of those early visual markers. Um, we made, like Evan mentioned, we made a we made a video. The Garden Song video was actually made before everyone started using webcams, like we are now. Yes, right. And yet, somehow they presaged it for better or for worse yes. with that video. So as soon as COVID hit. Um, you know, there was this idea to have fans create their own Garden Song music video at home. And then, you know, if we talk about Kyoto, the um, the second video, another, that's another video that kind of, that weirdly played with ideas of artists um, that, again, kind of, um, I don't know, potentially anticipated our time where Phoebe's performing in a skeleton suit in front of this very cheesy green screen footage of, of Japan, you know, I, I think it's also worth talking about why we, why she had to perform in front of green screen imagery. Yeah, I mean, the the secret behind that video was that it was going to be this very kind of blatantly artificial looking video with a green screen. And then the big reveal at the end of the video was going to be that Phoebe was actually in Kyoto. She was supposed to be in Kyoto doing some shows with The National, mm. uh, I think in March, right, Evan? And so the idea was we were going to grab some really high quality, beautiful footage of Phoebe in, in Kyoto and have that be the the reveal. That didn't happen, obviously. <laughs> so she kind of quickly took all that green screen stuff and put herself in Japan in, a, in an extremely artificial way. Um, again, and with the skeleton suit, it showed up again in that video. So kind of kept on telling that narrative. And then, you know, the, the, the post-release video for I Know the End, um, which is kind of the big kind of, you know, one of the big thing you must for the video kind of trajectory for Phoebe was um, she recorded at the uh, LA Memorial Coliseum and it's just this extremely high quality video. And, but once again, the, the skeleton suit is there, her band's wearing it this time. Right. And she wore it, you know, she joked about how she needed, you know, how bad that skeleton suit was probably smelling. Right. Yeah. By the end of yeah. all those different pieces of promo she did, I, I I don't know how many skeleton shoes she has. There might just be one. It must be multiple because in the, in the Garden Song video, it's not actually Phoebe wearing the skeleton suit; it's her bandmates. That's right. So there's right. two of them, at least two skeleton costumes. <laughs> 
Well, and that was interesting too, right? It was like everything around the Kyoto video had to be had to be changed to adjust for lockdown. With the original arc, I mean, we, when we were doing first meetings around this record, she had said pretty explicitly that she wanted the videos to go from kind of as lo-fi to as hi-fi as possible. That mm. like over the course of the videos, there was going to be that arc and that was going to be intentional. Mm. And even having to change everything around that video, that stayed intact, mm. which was which was great and I think succeeded. Um. Let's, you know, this is a good segue to talk about singles and pre-release singles. And we had this incredible epiphany in the previous episode. We were talking about um, how sometimes the first single to a new record is this unique standout track. Then the second song, the second single ends up being also a unique standout track, but sometimes on the opposite end of the spectrum. And then a third single ends up being this hybrid and perhaps a more accurate representation of the album. We were talking about this in the previous episode about Sufian. And it's funny to me when I look at the, the Punisher singles, it almost follows that model. Like to me, Garden is a bit uh, extreme from the record. Kyoto is, al- Kyoto is also extreme from the record. And then ICU is to me, maybe a more representation of the record. Do you guys have a, a philosophy when it comes to pre-release singles um, at all? Well, first everyone gets together and fights about what they like best. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and then, uh, then we sit out and we map it out. Um, you know, single, single choice changes so much from, from record to record. In a case like this, a lot of that single choice and order was informed by feedback we had from, you know, U.S. radio, U.K. radio specifically, and then feedback from digital. So the idea being these singles would, would come out in a way that allowed everybody to have the runway to do the job they needed to do in each of those spheres mm. without there being too much direct competition. Okay, so that, yeah, I mean that's interesting because they there are um, these songs. The first two specifically um, just paint a really different picture of what the album is going to sound like. And for all of the fans online, the album is completely mysterious to them. I mean, do you ever do you worry a little bit about um, when we let out this single, everyone's going to think that the album is going to sound like ten songs like this song? Oh, sure. I mean, that, that comes up a lot, you know, in this, with this record specifically though, you know, we had a few pre-release singles to sort of like run the gamut of what this record sounded like. So I I don't think there was any major concern that with the early single plot, we were going to like pigeonhole the record into like one type of thing, if if that answers your question. Well, and I forgot to mention that the garden song, you had mentioned this earlier, the garden song was actually not part of the album campaign originally to the to the from from uh, us the fans perspective yes now i have to i'd have to go back and and remember this hannah riley maybe you remember we may have held part of the thinking of holding the album announced for the second single might have had to do with lining up tour announcements I don't remember to be honest. What I'm thinking about now, though, is how how deeply not worried I was uh, putting Garden <laughs> Song out and, and sort of checking that against the record. Um, it's such a... So much of what makes this record so good, I think, is that it... it it sound it, it really really like I'm I'm gonna kind of use a two dollar word but like it so embodies the moods that it's articulating. It feels you know, Garden Song has so much of that in it. Just like the the fuzziness and the sort of 
the out of bodiness and the way that the vocals are, are still super like crisp and intimate inside of that. Like that song in particular feels, feels like it, it shows people how um, just like alive this record is and how um, all of these like subtle kind of hidden ways that it's, that it's really, really sophisticated. I don't know. Like it, it, it doesn't seem like a single, but I, I I do remember the feeling of being like very unworried and really excited that that was going to be the first song. Oh, for sure. I think in hindsight, you, you when you listen to the record, it is it is a great way to open things up, and in a way, it's kind of an album opener in itself. I think. I mean, from a music standpoint, it it's a phenomenally beautiful track. If she were to do one song for song exploder i would want it to be that one so we could figure out what that sound is in the back all that reverse sound is just so innovative it was uh, such an uh, emotional song but the soundscape behind it was incredible yeah i think i think a knock-on benefit of kind of going with that song first too is we were showcasing phoebe as a producer on this record she co-produced it Mm. with uh tony berg and ethan gushka um and uh, you know, and this was a this was kind of an evolution from from Strange from the Alps, uh, and I completely agree. The the weird, I, I think she was using these cheap guitars, um, maybe not cheap, but kind of specially made guitars that don't have that much resonance in them that come from old, old style guitars in L.A. It's a rubber nut or, or a rubber bridge. Oh, cool! I remember. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Okay, so let's let's talk about the pandemic. We were talking about that a little bit. So I just want to kind of go back to our release roadmap here. And and, and so you're hearing the record in October. I, you know, you're getting the masters uh, between Christmas and New Year's or in January or something like that. Um, and you're beginning this this process. Um, and you're beginning to solidify a date. Could you just walk me through a little bit of what maybe January, February, March would look like? And then when the pandemic's on the radar, you know, what, what, uh, that looked like internally. I mean, my memory is everything was hunky dory until it wasn't. <laughs> until we were clear that everything was shutting down and, you know, the decisions we had to make around moving things, it, it, there wasn't a lot of time to like sit and, you know, talk through everything and figure out, well, what would be best here? Mm. It was, that period was such a time of reacting and just trying to read tea leaves and figure out like what's going to happen, you know, what tours are going to happen, what tours aren't going to happen. You know, cause I, I remember the, the feeling even in March as things closed down and maybe in the back of our heads, we all knew that this wasn't going to be over by the summer, but people still kept their, their October dates on the books for mm-hmm. a good long while mm-hmm. until it was clear that this, this was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't, it's not like there was a lot to get out in front of and sort of, you know, plan or strategize around. It was very much like week to week, what is going on? Do we change course? Do we stay the course? And I, to me, that's how I sort of felt like all of those decisions were made during the pandemic period. Maybe uh, Anna or Robbie, you feel differently? It's, a, it's such a blur. It's such yeah, a blur. Yeah, well, that's right. I'm sorry to ask you questions that happened five no, years ago. No, no, I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I wish, I wish I had a more precise answer for you about what, the, you know, we did this call and we made that decision sure. and we, we, we took down all the bricks and then we rebuilt all the bricks, but it, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't you, that deep. Was there, no. 
Was there a moment from March, uh, between March and June, where you where you felt really confident and you're like, it doesn't matter what's happening outside of the world, this is gonna this is gonna be great and this <laughs> is gonna be well received. For me, you know, from you know, not looking at any numbers or data, but for me, things started looking really interesting when Phoebe went live on Instagram for Pitchfork. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing the outpouring of fans that tuned in to watch that. Um, we were talking about it earlier. It's kind of incredible that, you know, she started that video by kind of adjusting her phone and being like, I've never done this before. Am I doing this right? Right. She played, I don't know, four or five songs into her iPhone or her smartphone microphone. And mm. just watching those comments just go completely completely berserk he's like okay people are listening people you know you don't have a show you don't have an event to bring people out to but man people are tuning and they want it they want to see pv and it was Mm. for me that was really really impactful yeah i think again having garden song out first i mean the reaction to that song was really big it was a very early you know youtube premieres had just started as as a thing they sort of like live first watches um the reaction to that had been really strong and like, I mean, you know, again, not to sound cheesy, but like the record was really good and the decision to stick to a spring release was really uncontroversial. I think across the board, there just wasn't, there wasn't that much worry. Mm. There was, there was a lot of belief in, in this record and, and how it was going to be received, mm. even with a thousand unknowns. Mm. Yeah. And to that, you know, Phoebe was really proactive when this was going on very early came up with that idea to do the world tour where she was going to film all these performances, like one in her bathroom, one in her kitchen and did a really funny uh, like tour poster for it and had already been thinking about like doing this and letting the the pieces sort of fall into place of who is going to broadcast which performance. Mm -hmm. But that was, that decision was made on their end very early and I think very smart to do so. Not to downplay the, the pandemic and, and, you know what has gone on with the pandemic but in in a in a strange way a record like this i feel like was really embraced by the time june came around i feel like it was almost like people needed a record like this um and and i and i kind of wonder if that you know helped the record in some way I'm not quite sure. I mean, there's definitely parts of the record. Garden Song Video is, is probably the biggest example, but there are definitely parts of this record that seem really prophetic, mm. Um, mm. that seem like they're they're built for this weird right. period of isolation, but an isolation that we're kind of all in together. Right. Yes. It, it's weird. Mm. It's great, but it, it's 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 weird. And every time I go back and listen, I'm reminded how uncanny the, you know, the record is recorded to sound a little uncanny and, and, and hearing it now it's, it's just, it's, it's even more so. <laughs> right down to song titles. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's true. Robbie, you talked a little bit about how there's this, you know, seriousness to the music and, and, and to what Phoebe does but with a little bit of a wink. And I want to ask you about from a promotion standpoint, 
um, you know, I, I brought up earlier the the Kinfolk magazine, which is to me is um, something really sophisticated, and and it surprised me because it carries a lot of weight. An article like that, but then you know you counter that with some of the late night TV performances that are, or or the pitchfork thing shot on your phone, where there's that balance. How how did you plan on on balancing the the different types of promo for this record, Phoebe? is so great at um, rising to the occasion uh, in, in situations like this. The The first late night TV, I believe, was uh, Jimmy Fallon. It was Phoebe Bridges live from the laboratory um, in which she uh, she was playing into a, a toy microphone and sitting right. in a bathtub. Right. Um, it, was, it was great. And then, and then I think for James Corden, she uh, was in a race car wearing a helmet. Right. Um, and then for I believe it was it was one of the others. She it was just a kind of a classic green screen video karaoke style video of her performing <laughs> Kyoto. Um, all very much kind of straight from Phoebe's brain. Obviously, the opportunity to play on late night TV and do it from your house or have to do it from your house kind of changes the equation entirely. Mm. Um, but then she did Seth Meyers, and they recorded an incredibly beautiful kind of pensive performance from this old haunted theater in Hollywood. Um, I think, you know, she adapted with what, you know, what resources were available at the beginning of lockdown. It was only possible to make, you know, a live from home style performance. Um, but as things slowly opened up, um, you were able to maybe put a small crew together and film on location. Mm. So, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to Phoebe's resourcefulness in in uh, in rising to the occasion for those. Um, you know, coming up with a creative, funny idea to kind of deal with the fact that you don't get to maybe look or sound as good as you want to for your late night television debut on that record. Um, but then, very quickly, raising the bar to doing something that I think stands on its own as a great piece of art. I mean, the Seth Meyers performance, um, you know, and you, you don't even need to acknowledge that it was made at this time. I think it's a, it's an incredible piece of video and performance. The, the photo shoot and the album cover, can you talk to me about that process and the creative behind it? Evan, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, Phoebe had her own creative director, and had a group of photographers that she'd already liked working with. And they had already sort of had, they had come sort of almost ready-made with, with, with the idea of what they wanted things to look like. So they did about four photo shoots, um, some in England, some here, uh, one in Amsterdam, I believe. And, you know, put together a nice little package of like, here are the sort of different photo shoots we did. What, what do we want for the, for the cover, what do we want for more press purposes? Mm-hmm. And sure, we had our input, but they had a pre- they came with a pretty strong idea of what they wanted. And really, by the time it got to us, it was more about you know logistics than it was about choosing um, or having any like big input on what the album cover was going to look like. Is that a conversation that you would ideally begin to have back in October? Yeah, we were talking about that before October. We were talking about what the videos were going to look like, what the photos were going to look like. That's, I think, when the skeleton suit kind of entered the conversation. Mm. Um, we try to do that stuff really, really early 
these days, actually, before we even start talking about photos and artwork, we, we encourage our artists to put mood boards together for us. Oh, cool. Um, not just helpful for making videos and making art or sending to a photographer, but just helpful for us internally when we think about how we're going to talk about the record and how we're going to, how we're going to market it. Hmm. Yeah. And photos, things like photos and videos, you know, take more and more time to, to make sure are set up right. I mean, there's legal considerations you have to think about and just having all those decks in a row can take um, longer and longer. It seems every year. We had some issues with the location potentially on a, one of the Phoebe photo shoots. Oh, oh, I've been dancing around it. But <laughs> <laughs> That's why I kicked it over to you. Yeah. That's interesting. I and mean, that's something that you wouldn't really think of, but I mean, remember like years ago with that vampire weekend cover, it's probably something that exactly. people are a lot more worried about. Oh yeah. And especially, you know, some, somebody of Phoebe's profile, the last thing you want to be spending any time on an album campaign on is addressing an issue like that either publicly or, yeah. you know, behind the scenes right. legally. Yeah, no, you're right. And with that, so going back to the ideal, uh, rollout, when would that have ideally been settled on? This is the album cover. This is the aesthetic we're going with knowing that the release date is in June. Yeah. Right. I mean, same, you know, if, if all things, it's so hard to put an ideal date on this kind of thing because, because you know, every, every record is different. Every campaign is different. Mm. Um, and to my knowledge or to my memory of it, I don't think it's that we had photos or um, art ideas in necessarily late. Uh, yeah. So when we got it, it was good. I mean, if it, these, there just is, it's hard to put an ideal down on when we would want these things really you have a production schedule that's going to dictate it pretty pretty rigidly yeah and if you fall outside of that schedule you won't have the record on time so. sure yeah too too late is a lot easier to identify yeah exactly. an ideal or too early <laughs> that's a good point i i there's, want there's too late and then there's no really it's too late and then there's actually no seriously it's too late now the three layers of sure late. yeah we talk a lot on this show about post-release strategy. Uh, it's on the minds of our label listeners for a lot of lesser known artists, because uh, after a release date, there's just not much left to offer your audience from, from our perspective. Can you talk to me a little bit about the post-release strategies and how you guys planned or, or planned? Cause we're still, you know, in the year of the release and I, and I just saw an EP recently, but how you plan to keep the momentum going for the uh, for the album, especially in this case, without a tour, we, we didn't plan to be without a tour. Sure, <laughs> um, it. I mean, some of, some of it is is just making sure that there's there's new things to release, whether that's videos, um, whether that's planning events, you know, on or offline, um, and just kind of making sure that there's that there's stuff along the way. Um, I mean, Robbie, I'd love to get your take on this but i think the other thing you know for for this campaign in particular and for phoebe is that we just know we knew from experience that phoebe is going to stay really active mm. that just she's an artist with you know a lot of projects a lot of ideas like a, a very sort of active creative marketing side of her brain mm -hmm. um where we knew there was going to be a, a lot that that kept coming and, and we have you know we have a very busy end of year timeline with what, six, seven weeks to go. Wow. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, 
you know, Scott, you mentioned, you know, maybe smaller labels or smaller bands, but, you know, Phoebe's been the beneficiary of uh, having a lot of folks that want to work with her, the mm-hmm. late night TV thing being an example. Um, but because she kind of does have that side of her brain where she is, uh, you know, kind of, again, pushing, pushing the quality of what she does forward. I think that kind of begets more those opportunities um, because those late night TV performances are so great. I think more and more outlets want a piece of that. Um, so in a way it's been a lot of luck and a lot of good fortune, but you know, a, you know, you have to give a lot of credit to Phoebe and just kind of her, you know, maintaining such a high bar of excellence on everything. It's, you know, she doesn't take any promo opportunity lightly, um, mm. especially right now. And I think, you know, I think we, we've been, you know, rewarded for that. I want to, um, before I let you go, I want to ask you some advice that you might have for indie labels who are planning their own releases. And, and that's really the, the makeup of our audience is, is, you know, perhaps some DIY artists, but a lot of uh, indie labels um, who are, you know, challenged to, um, to get heard above the noise and to, to, to get a record from a band or discover a band and plan out a release. And I've been, I've worked on records that have, uh, I've had a year to to release and I've worked on records where I've had a week to release. And so I, I want to ask you about uh, some advice and, and I apologize to to put you on the spot, but do, do any of you uh, have anything that you can share from your perspective working on a record like Punisher and the other records you've worked on that you could share with some of our listeners? I think Fee is a good example of an artist, maybe going back to what we were talking about at the top of this is, you know, the kind of artist that can be prolific um, and really does take advantage of all the tools that are out there uh, for artists right now. Um, social media mm-hmm. is massive mm-hmm. uh, and she's the master of it. Uh, you know, you don't need to make, we didn't make a five, five figure music video until way after the record was out um, for this record. The, 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 the videos for this record cost, very little because they were made on webcams and green screens. Mm. Um, I think, you know, it's important that, you know, Phoebe's a great example of an artist that kind of fires on all cylinders. She's pushing things through her social media as much as she is doing this great content. Uh, She takes advantage of all the different opportunities that come your way and all the different tools that are out there for artists right now. So yeah, I would just say, just stay, keep, keep your art and keep your music in the, in the, in the spotlight and take advantage of everything that's out there to do it, Mm. to do so with. That's good. I'd say from the timeline and releasing records side of things, like just understanding that anytime, anytime you're building a record campaign or putting on a track, it's always about, you're always going to be faced with competing interests uh, from whether like this, is this good for radio? Is this good for digital? And to sort of like, not worry too much about getting mired in that knowing as long as you go in with a, with a uh, clear priority of what you want to do with a record and following that is more important than really getting mired. And if we launch this at 9am, is it better for <laughs> these three people? You know? Yeah. That's a great yeah. point. And actually, I think to your question about, about post-release strategy too, I mean, that would be, that would be a piece of advice that I would want other people to, to spend time on. Like don't, don't show up to release day 
with the, with the gaslight on, you know, mm. um, <laughs> it's occurring to me thinking about this, that actually one conversation we did have was about when to release, I know the end, which is such a massive, mm-hmm. unbelievable song. Um, and the fact that that's been something that, that fans have gotten to know, you know, like, you know, around release and after, um, True. I think was really smart in hindsight. It seemed, it seemed, it, 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 not everybody was sold on, on holding a song that big back. Um, and it absolutely was the right thing. So just in general, knowing, you know, the, like pre, pre-release is short and post-release is forever. Nice. Um, and keeping that in mind as kind of you're balancing everything. Uh, I like that. It takes, it takes discipline, yeah. but, uh, but it's worth doing. And I mean, really, as you, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about her first record. And I mean, it, I don't know the math, but probably most people discovered her after her first record was released. And it was just that word of mouth. And so you think of, of any of the work you did leading up to that release, it was great, but it was all the work after that really, um, got so many, uh, so many fans. Do you, um, do you guys feel anxious or nervous during uh, release week or, or, uh, release day or, or are things pretty much set in stone as, as they should be by then? Now nah, you're locked into the tractor yeah. beam by that point. Yeah. If, no, if it was going to go wrong, I would have gone so wrong so much longer ago. Like yeah. it, you know, there's yeah. there at that point. Yeah. At that point you're locked in. Right guys. I mean, tell, tell me if you disagree. Long, well, except long, for the, it's way more stressful than that. Oh, yes. Unless it's, uh, September, 2017. Oh, Phoebe mm-hmm. and Moses release week where you find yourself on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Evan's had some stress dreams around release days before, but that's only once. Well, thank you so much for, thank you so much for doing this guys. This is, I mean, such a fantastic record. Uh, Our listeners know that. And, um, and there's so much more to come from this record, uh, especially as the year end lists start coming out. Um, So, so thank you so much for doing this and thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experience uh, with me and with our listeners. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. Um, thanks again to Robbie, Evan, and Hannah uh, and for sharing um, their wisdom. I f- hope that you found this helpful. I hope that there's things that you can apply to your release strategies when you are running your label or self-releasing your own music, that there's some principles that you can take. Um, don't forget, go to our website, otherrecordlabels.com. There we have lots of free resources for indie artists and indie record labels including our release roadmap template that you can download for free. Go to otherrecordlabels.com slash roadmap. And listen, if you're listening to this episode, most likely you've heard the record Punisher from Phoebe Bridgers, and I praised it so much in this episode, and I'm being genuine. It is a phenomenal record. Make sure, if you haven't already, to go pick up a copy. You've got to hear it on vinyl. You've got to feel it on vinyl. And thanks for listening.